you're at your local bookstore or on Amazon, the book Endure, Mind, Body and the Curiously Elastic Limits of Human Performance is written by author Alex Hutchinson. For me and for anybody interested in this domain, this is a must read. I was excited to get Alex on the podcast. Let's go straight to that conversation. Alex, welcome. It's thrilling to have you on our podcast. Thanks a lot, Gary. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and chat. So let me start with this. Um, The book uh, pretty much was released. I know you had uh, an updated version come out in 2019, which was a version I got a hold of and absolutely loved. It was one of the best reads I've had in probably the last five years in, in this space. Looking back from the release point to where you are today, is there anything that you think, boy, now I know this, I would add that to, or this topic, interest to a chapter? What would you add between book release and now? Yeah, I mean, I could add something to almost everything in the book, right? Like, so I think the key, mm. I, I think about this a lot, and I had to think about this when I brought up brought up the revised edition, because like, what what would I change? And it's like, there's incremental advances to to every facet or every element of, of of research that's going on. Are there revolutionary advances? That's a that's a, a harder question. Mm. And and you know you guys know as well as I do. There's been big advances in things like uh, you know artificial intelligence, uh, deep learning, mm. uh, which are just I think starting to. To, to enter into this space in a way that's that's maybe meaningful to like average recreational athletes, um, so that's like an area that I don't touch on at all in in the book that that I might have worked into right. in terms of trying to how how you understand data, how you understand big data. I think that's where some a lot of the exciting stuff has been happening. But it's like you know I look back some of the stuff I updated for the updated version. It's like my understanding of nutrition, like you know, let's say we knew like we have like 5% knowledge of what we really need to know of, of what to eat. Right. And now we're at 6%. So now right. our, 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 our understanding yeah. of like the role of fat. And, uh, I, I wrote a lot about, you know, I wrote somewhat skeptically about low carb, high fat diets, but I wrote about fat adaptation and, and about, you know, fasted workouts. And I think my sense is that among the people that I talk to, those fads or no, fads is a value laden word, but those those uh, protocols are maybe less. People have thought, you know what? I'm not sure the pros outweigh the cons. So there's stuff like that where it's like stuff that seemed hot yeah. at the time. It's like, oh, maybe it didn't pan out. It's not. It's not that it didn't. It's it's wrong, but it's just like I would emphasize it differently. So anyway, that's a, that's a rambling answer, but it's like, yeah, there, there's everything I, I would update, but I'm not sure there's like any. Oh, and you know what? Brain stimulation is actually the big, probably the biggest thing where mm. I'm like, I would, right. I would, like Halo has gone out of business, which is the, the yeah. you know, so it's like I, I devoted a whole chapter to, to electric brain stimulation and I'm still not sure. Yeah. I, I still have the sense that there's a real effect there, but the, but the, the idea that this mm. was going to transform competitive athletics and was going to become a real issue in terms of fairness I, I, it looks like I got that a little bit wrong. And so that's probably a chapter that deserved, and I did update that a little bit, but it's like, I, I, I probably wouldn't have given it a whole chapter based on what I know now. Right. It's really interesting, you know, to see a company like Halo no longer be in the spectrum. And I remember meeting those guys at the MIT Sloan conference years back and starting to try to posture, you know, is this 
are we too far over the line? Is there too much risk potentially with this type of technology? And I think there was a lot of fear uh, surrounding it for our listeners. You know, Halo was a technology that you basically wore like a set of headphones over the head that would stimulate brain patterns that we were looking for translation into athletic skills and, and endeavors. And there was some pretty good and some pretty good uh, compelling research out there that suggested that it was very positive. But it's really interesting because I think the thing about your writing, Alex, in the book Endure, firstly, this natural kind of, I call it impatient curiosity, uh, kind of came across to me. And I think we live in that space similarly when when working with athletes. The second thing that was like a, a revisit for me was this whole central governor theory, which is where brain stimulation was being looked at to be part of that equation. If you were unpacking central governor theory into its simplest forms, how do you describe that to somebody who's who's new into running, for example? How do you describe? Yeah, that? I mean, I think that the basic idea is really actually pretty pretty easy to grasp. It's that when you feel like you've reached your limits, it's it's your brain that is doing so to protect you. Your brain is 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 saying no, you can't run anymore. As opposed to like what I, you know, another way I put it is like. You put someone on a treadmill and you have them run until they fall off the back. And then you challenge the scientist to say, what physiological parameter was maxed out at the moment this guy fell off the back of the treadmill? And for for every any physiological parameter you can come up with, now, it may be that in one given context, yeah, the guy's heart rate was at max or whatever, but you can construct right. scenarios where someone will fall off the back of the treadmill where that parameter is not at max. So it can't be that heart rate is what forces you to quit. It can't be that lactate levels force you to quit. Right. It can't be that muscle fatigue forces you to quit. So there is no parameter, physiological parameter, you can that you can point to that says, this is what tells people that they've reached their physical limits. And the central governor theory mm-hmm. is basically saying, that's because it's your brain that is performing some calculation consciously, subconsciously. Like the details get very messy, but the essence is your brain has decided that it's probably wise for you to stop. Uh, and so it's making it impossible for you to go on. So from a from a sports science context, I always say there's two laws in sports science. There's availability in a broad sense. We want to de-risk an athlete from injury. Uh, and then there's capacity. Are we optimizing the genetic potential of that athlete. And the good news on that second one is we don't know what that genetic potential is, right? Uh, We don't know what it looks like. And it's those ceilings that we try to work uh, in and and work towards in terms of even shunting those higher and higher. There's a ton of methodologies out there to kind of do that. But one of the interesting parts of that equation I've always looked at is, and it's kind of the truth perception relationship, right? Um, I had someone say to me once, there's no such thing as truth, there's only perception. And when you understand that and the environments to which you are raised and train in, that there's this kind of imprinting that is happening on the human system, right? It could be from when we were little kids, our parents kind of put barriers to risk in front of us. But that whole kind of balance between perception of risk of injury and perception of improving capacity performance, for me, that's a fine balance. Do you look at it the same way? Yeah. And, and, you know, like, so obviously, so look, my sport is running. So I'll I'll talk, my analogies will come from from endurance sports or from running. And lots of runners get injured, you know risk is a, is a real thing in that context. But you can also think of risk in the sense of not, am I going to like blow up my hamstring, but 
am I going to make it to the finish before hitting the, some sort of wall where I, you know, so it's competitive risk. And so the, right. the, the, right. there's a lot of very interesting research that is, uh, in, in a sense, that doesn't have to, doesn't rely on any sort of mystical central governor. It's just about pacing. How do you pace yourself mm. to, to maximize your performance? And this becomes, it, it ends up being a, just a fascinating kind of test lab to understand how people are operating. And, and so for me, in writing Endure, one mm. of the interesting things for me was reading all this research and then going back and reflecting on my own career and saying, right. how did I race? Okay, think of all my best races at various distances. I always ran the second half faster than the first half. Now, there's, mm. there's, there's some very interesting research that shows that even world record holders speed up in the last kilometer, let's say, of a 10K race. So they're, they're, they're holding something in reserve. But for me, and, and everyone's on a mm. spectrum, it's like there are some people who just are totally yeah. fearless uh, or what I would have called, you know, stupid. <laughs> they're like, you know, the gun <laughs> goes and they're sprinting. And it's like, dude, yeah. you know yeah. it's a 10-kilometer race. How come you're, 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 you're sprinting the first – like – how, how many races have you run? You run like a hundred. How do you not learn that you're going to blow up? But they're they're just wired that they're yeah. they're letting it all hang out to in the hope that one day they're gonna it's all gonna click and they're gonna hang in all the way. And and for sometimes for some of them it does like I've seen it happen where people who are for years it's like oh that guy always does that and then one day it's like oh man he, he held on he won the race damn it um, and and whereas I was on the other end of that spectrum of like. I am going to intellectualize this. I'm going to think very carefully about mm. what what I should mm. be capable of, what the odds are. I mean, you know, I, w- I wasn't explicitly doing like game theory calculations, but I, I just the, the fact <laughs> yeah. is, I, uh, in a long career of running 1500 meters, I never ran the first ha- the first 800 in faster than two minutes, even though my personal best was considerably faster than t- than that four minute mm. mile pace, and so. I look back now and I'm like, that was a big mistake because I didn't give myself a chance. I didn't, I, I didn't mm. accept that even the, the sort of 30% risk of blowing up. I mean, accept that 30% risk and run five races and then maybe you're going right. you, to make it. So, sorry, I'm, I'm wandering away from your question, but the, the point is that that reflects my personality. But like you said, it also reflects how I grew up, how I was coached, how, mm. um, which it served me well in some contexts, but maybe put ceilings that I uh, wasn't aware of at the time because not just like, am I going to get injured, but how do I, how much am I willing to let it, how much am, am I willing to fail uh, in order to, to yeah. and, and the right answer is different in different sports and for different people. <laughs> like maybe in some sports, consistency is rewarded. In other sports, the occasional mm-hmm. like, you know, grand slam home run is rewarded. And so you have to, exactly. It's, it, there's no right answer, but there's context and there's understanding that you are making decisions, even if you don't feel like you're making uh, decisions. It's really interesting too. I know that there's some research and study going into like children. It's like second child has almost the opportunity to develop into a world-class athlete as opposed to first child in many situations. I don't want to speak in blanket terms, but part of the rationale and some of the long-term athletic development individuals I've spoke to around the world, they tend to think that it's that parental, it's learning to be a parent. Right, first kid. I remember driving home from the uh, hospital, doing forty miles an hour on a freeway, scared. Right, <laughs> that something was going to happen. And there's all these things that kind of you learn and adapt as a parent in terms of the boundaries that you set on a child. And then when that second child comes along, those boundaries are a little bit less, and those risks can be elevated slightly. So 
to me that like there's so much leading into capacity and central governor subconsciously and to your point um because you're your own lab right as a runner as, a, as an athlete um consciously as well because like as you indicated right you're you're setting up going into a race trying to reserve what you've got for that second half of the race so the subconscious conscious balance is it self-talk that our athletes who are listening could say yeah look i've got to have better self-talk is that maybe step one um, I know we can't go back and get another set of parents or change our change our um, our upbringing. What do you? What are those methods to to begin that journey on raising capacity? Yeah. So just to to pick up your, your your earlier point about kids, it is it is funny you say that. My kids are five and seven now, and it's like, you know, yeah. when yeah. I let my older daughter start to cross the street by herself, it was like, well, we we just treat them the same. So every every sort of affordance yeah. that I give my older daughter, my younger one gets it two years earlier. Yeah. And, and yeah. you know, yeah. who, who right. knows? Uh, the effect will maybe she'll be a world class athlete. Maybe she'll hit, be hit by a car. Like, I don't know. We'll we'll hope it's the the we'll hope it's <laughs> yeah, the first one. A, but yeah, cool yeah. One. But yeah. but um, yeah, it, it's definitely true. And th- th- you're right. That's a fascinating area of research. And and there's mm-hmm. also like just wondering slightly off tangent. There's some really interesting research I wrote about a year or two ago that looked at like you you, you ask parents. Okay, here's a list of like 20 things that some kids are allowed to do and others aren't. Tick off the ones that your kid is allowed to do. And then fast forward, I can't remember how many years it was. Let's see which kids are overweight and which aren't. And it's like you look at and and the kids who have more freedoms and tend to be uh, healthier. The ones who were allowed to walk down the street to find their friends or to the park, the ones who were allowed to cross the road a little bit earlier. And they have like a list of this, like if you have six or more of these affordances by the age of whatever, uh, your risk is dropped by X percent. And that, that had a big effect on me in terms of thinking about precisely these things in the, yeah. in the context of, uh, of of parenting of like, yeah, as much as I am aware of the risks, I also want to give kids freedom. Anyway, that's p- parenting's a whole other topic. So let let me uh, see see if I can remember <laughs> yeah. what your actually question actual question was. Oh yes, how do you how do you start to to raise the raise the ceilings? One of the responses I got to to endure a lot is like, wow, really interesting stuff. You really identified a lot of interesting problems. Why didn't you tell us how to solve them? And and uh, it's like, well, because I don't know. Otherwise, I would be a coach. The, 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 that's another. Yeah. Book. Well, that's that's <laughs> another career or another personality. Like like yeah. The, 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 yeah. That's another point I, I often make. Is like, if if I knew how to coach people, I would be coaching people. It's like that, that's a skill set that's beyond mm. knowing research. Uh, and that there's a lot of relation relationship right. stuff that goes into coaching. But anyway, to, to actually answer your question, uh, as you hinted the the first answer i can come up with is is motivational self-talk not necessarily because Mm -hmm. that's the only or the best uh approach but because it's the one that people have tested empirically in a so i i Mm -hmm. as a as a guy who has not uh built up my own database of like i've tried this with a thousand athletes and here's what seemed to work for me all i can do is say uh tell me what has been tested in a in a it's it's hard to randomize psychological inventions interventions right like it's it's hard to do mm-hmm. rct mm-hmm. randomized controlled trials of like of feelings but to yeah. the extent that people have tried this is what i can say you know what there's some pretty interesting evidence that if you take some time to work on your thought patterns and it's important to emphasize 
It's not mm. if you decide that in the middle of a competition you're going to tell your you're going to suddenly tell yourself to you know recognize negative thoughts and and change them. It's it's you do the work beforehand to try and change the how you're framing situations and what your automatic response. You, you you can predict what it's going to feel like halfway through a 10k or a marathon. Like it's not a surprise. Right. It's going to feel like a surprise when you're in the race. You're like oh, I I, had, I did not remember it was this unpleasant. But you know before that it's, it's going right. to be like that. So if you can change your responses, you know, like from this really sucks and I'm an idiot to it's hard, but this is I, cho I chose to be here. This is what I want to do. And this I trained yeah. for this. And this is my opportunity. You know, th there's it, different things work for different people. So to me, that is yeah. like in terms of practical, like what, things you can do in two weeks, that's mm. that's like mm. Uh, the first thing I would say, Bro broader, I, I, it's it's really hard to recommend mindfulness because it's such a buzzword and has been recommended for mm -hmm. everything. But the more I yeah, the more yeah. I sort of get into it, the more I think that sort of mi uh, mindfulness approach, the non judgmental awareness of what you're feeling, and understand and, mm -hmm. and understanding. Going back to what we were saying about central governor, the the, oh, right. um, you know, how do you how do you change central governor? I I really think mm -hmm. knowing that it exists is a powerful step first one. step that so that when you when you feel yeah. that feeling that I can't go any further that doesn't mean you can just decide to go further but you can understand this isn't like a physiological crisis I'm not dying I'm mm. just now right. in the hard part of the battle with with myself so yeah it's amazing the high performance models that I've worked in and learned from and gleaned in terms of systems there's really when I, when I look at athlete-centric models, I always begin, I teach coaches this, that the absolute foundation is the emotional presentation of that athlete. On top of that is the cognitive decision-making because the first affects the second. Then we can pass out physical systems, look at those, technical ability, tactical use, strategic use over the course of a time period or sequence, and that strategic outcome generally feeds back into the emotional framework. So it's the cycle that is continuing to build. The emotional side of the equation is probably the hardest, as you indicated, probably the hardest to measure, but may be probably the thing that could have potentially the most effect on not only the rate of perceived exertion, but then in terms of future modeling, central governor. Yeah, and I think it's also the emotional part is is the part that's hardest to get people to buy into, or at least, again, speaking right. from my own personal experience, at least, it's like, mm. I, and every, everyone's different, right? Like, not everyone's has the same mindset as me, but I, certainly for me and for a lot of my friends, it was, you know, what can we measure? What can you show me matters? And so uh, yeah. the other stuff I'm not going to worry about. And I, and I didn't, you know, I, di I didn't worry about that, about how I was feeling about a race, how I was feeling about myself, how, how you know how I was feeling about my preparation, and uh, yeah, and, and to some extent, it's like it's like if only someone had told me. But yeah, people did tell me. Like it's you know it's not it's not like yeah. nobody knew about sports psychology in the 1990s. It's that right, people were right. telling me, and I was like, yeah, whatever. Like yeah, thanks for your, thanks for your input. <laughs> so so that's that's I think one of the big challenges is 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 not just knowing the right answers but thinking carefully and I, I think this is kind of what you're what you are suggesting and saying is yeah. how, how do we kind of integrate that from an early place so that people are are receptive and and rather than skeptical to to even though these ideas mm. are, are can be 
it's not like as, as simple as like well if you run this many miles at this many pace at this at this pace you, you'll mm. you'll achieve this physiological state it's 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 tricky it is and i think most practitioners most coaches who are out there when they're looking at individual physical systems you know whether it's cardiovascular system which has been predominant in our world for a long time or whether it's you know, the biomechanics of running, whether it's running power, whether it's force production, uh, force impulse, the kind of all these independent measures, we've kind of always known or I've always postured that it's it's not one plus one plus one equals three. It's one plus one plus one equals five, six, right? There are multiples in terms of the interrelationships between physical systems and how they are set up to de- develop this athlete at the end of the day. You know, it's it's like that old saying, if you believe you can or you believe you can't, you're right. And to that end, I think once you're getting into that writing like a computer code to accept the challenges that potentially exist and seeing them positively on outcomes, there's that adaptation, I think, that could potentially spiral up. But I don't see a lot of people, Alex, that are even looking at this measuring it or adding it as a critical portal to athlete development. I think, you know, just as, you, as you're saying that, one of the thoughts that's that's popping in my mind is one of the tricky things is that the, there are far more roads to success. Like for everything that I can, when I think about, okay, so let's say, should a coach be screening for this sort of emotional component? Uh, it's like, well, yeah. for, for every trait that I would say, these are the things you should look for. There are examples of, you know, fantastic athletes who are the opposite. You know, for, for every calm, stoic athlete, there's a fiery, angry athlete. And it's not, yeah. that's, that's different. Bulk McEnroe, yeah, great example, yeah. right? I just watched that movie Oh, yeah, again. I haven't yeah. watched yeah. that yet. I got it. But, but it's like, yeah. there's no, like, when you talk about the cardiovascular system, nobody's saying, well, for some people, having a really low VO2 max can be an advantage. It's like, no, it's like, <laughs> yeah, no more, more is better. They like, yes, at, at the yeah. at the really extreme end, there may be some trade-offs between the last few percent of VO2 max and efficiency. Maybe you, you can't, you, you have to choose between, but fundamentally, like, yeah, more is better. Where, whereas there really is, there really are different roads to success, you know, psychologically and, and in terms of understanding... Yeah. You know, getting angry versus you know being totally passive and and or being positive versus negative. Like anytime I talk about mm. some of the motivational self talk literature, I'll, I'll I'll have people who are like, you know, I have my best race when I'm you know when I have a chip on my shoulder when I'm angry and and, and mm. it's like, yeah, yeah, I know people like that and and who knows could they be could their patterns be retrained such that they would be even better maybe but maybe not and so. Part, I think that's one reason that it it it's uh, it remains a sort of uh, under or neglected aspect of of athletic preparation is that there there is never going to be just one answer because that part of us is too complicated to to codify. It's amazing to think about emotion as a fuel source. Um, our president of our company, Corey Paddock, uh, is uh, a former energy trader and lived in that sector. And one of the quotes I we were posturing the other week is anger is you know this endlessly renewable <laughs> energy source if it's tapped into and used correctly, right? Yeah, so, yeah, the foundations the foundations of it made it just absolutely fascinating. And I think you know we've got to get away from looking at the like analyzing the body like it's a car and using that an analogy across the line. I think is while it's provided some good 
education to the layperson about how things work. It's also kind of set us up for um, some of the parts failure in many ways as well. And I think it's more like we've got to look at the body like an, a computer code and an operating system versus the various softwares we put on top of that operating system. And what is the capacity of your operating system? How much RAM are you running on for VO2, right? How does that all contextually come to par? You know, it's, it's, it's I think, one of the beauties of this industry is I often term it optimum genetic potential. We don't know what that is. We don't know. And, and that's that's the problem and the beauty of it. Um, every time every time I'm coaching, that's a problem and the beauty at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I mean, just thinking of the car analogy, and it's like, the reason it's so sticky, I think, is that given a, a diverse group of people, if you want to have a quick screening to figure out who's going to be the best athletes, there's some very simple physical tests that are going to get you 99% of the way there. And it's only really once mm. you get to the, everyone's got similar physical attributes that then that last percent, all the other stuff, all the stuff we're talking about becomes the difference maker. But it's mm. like, uh, you know, on a high school team, you, you, you'd rather have someone who who is born with a high VO2 max and is willing to, to run 50 miles a week than someone who's a born winner, but, or, you know, or who is a, there's still, there, there's always, it's always great to have someone who has that psychological killer, killer instinct. But if they don't have, if they're just, you know, completely not built for the sport and not willing to train, you're, they're not going to get there. And so you ha- that's why I think people stick with that purely physical framework because it is like, let's, mm. you, you know, the, the unanswerable question is always, well, how much is physical? How much is, is, is you know, mental or psychological or these other sort of circles? And it's like, well, it depends on the context. And, it, you know, in a random yeah. sample of the population, it's 99.9% physical. At the Olympics, I don't know what the number is, but it's like it, it's the mental side is huge. And so th- that's yeah. that's where it gets interesting. But it's hard for people to intuit because they all have the experience of like, you know, I trained pretty hard in high school and some guy showed up one day and he had never run before, mm. you know, and he, and he was way faster than me. So how could, you know, that clearly wasn't mental or maybe, maybe it was, but historically through your career as an athlete, what runners do you admire? Who do you look up to? Is there somebody that you say, yeah, this is the pinnacle for me. I, I, if I could go back and model that training program, model that individual athlete, or is it somebody that's just, you know, like the old prefontaine statement, a pure guts runner, right? Um, who do you look up to? You know, for a long time, I I think my hero was really Roger Bannister. And I, you know, I had a copy of his Mm. uh, biography or autobiography next to my bed for for many years, that and Once a Runner. And I would read just every night I would read a random chapter from one of those books. And there's a lot of things I I liked about Roger Bannister. But I think I think I was also heavily influenced, maybe ironically enough, by Tim Noakes, who's his original the lore of running which i got when i was in high school one of his the things his tim noakes you know for uh for better or for worse he has evolved a lot over time and has been he has continued to challenge mm-hmm. new ideas one of the one of the themes that i'm I, I don't know how much he still espouses this but back in 1990 he was big on doing the most you can on the least training you could so like Maxim, be, maximizing the sort of the efficiency of your training output, and and with the the rationale that this is going to minimize your chances of 
needless injury or or overtraining. So it's like, wait right. till you've maxed out on 30 miles a week before you move up to 40 miles a week and, and you know, mm. figure out. And th- I think there is some some really nice logic to that in terms of learn how to race. Don't don't just think you can solve every problem by training a little bit harder because you're going to reach a point where uh, you're running 100 miles a week and someone still beats you and you're like, well, I better run 110 or 120 and then you're going to get, get hurt. Yeah. And Bannister was a sort of paragon of that. There's a lot of things about Bannister, but he was a, a sort of minimalist trainer, a smart guy, a thoughtful guy. He was He ended up being a neurologist. He was... absolutely ahead of his time in terms of thinking like for him when a race didn't go well it wasn't a question of i'm going to go back and 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 punish myself with with you know 20 in uh, 400s it was i'm going to go up to scotland and spend a few days rock climbing and get my head back on and then i'm going to come back and two weeks later i'm going to break the four minute mile and so there was a lot of what i liked about his his belief was fundamental like whereas compared to john landy his rival Landy was a seriously heavy trainer mm. and he kept running 402 or 401 mm. and he would go back and train harder and right. harder and harder. And and Bannister, to him, the answer wasn't train harder and harder. To him, the answer was look within, like take a rest, figure out how mm. you can get everything out of yourself on the day of the race. And so I was a big believer. I What I loved about Bannister, which I, I, I to some extent tried to emulate in my career, was if there was a guy, if you were to, if you were to take all the runners in the world and have them do a standardized workout, predict their times, and then have them mm-hmm. do a race. Who's going to have the greatest ratio, the greatest overperformance ratio that compared to what he's capable right. of doing in training, when the chips are down and we're competing, who is the one who finds that magic? What, what we would now talk about, who who dials, who, who's able to turn the dials of the central governor to 11 uh, to, to yeah. the most. And, and I love that. Now, having said all that, I will say my idolization of Roger Bannister probably meant that I kept my mileage lower than I should have throughout my career. And, and one of my regrets is, you know, I never ran a hundred mile week. Like I was a pretty good 1500, wow, yeah. 5,000 meter runner. Uh, it's like I was running like 40 miles a week when I ran my 1500 bests. Like, and, 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 you know, late, it's not that I was stupid. I understood, Hey, it would be good to run a little more, but I was very cautious in moving up and I did have some injury problems. And it's like, if you want to get to hundred miles a week, and if you're a little bit delicate you need to start early like you, you can't wait till you're 28 and say <laughs> oh maybe i should try mileage so anyway that that's the long answer to your question uh, yeah great great answer and uh, insightful and uh segues me over to a discussion on aging a little bit and uh one of our friends of kinetics and um working with our company right now a little bit is melinda elmore you know who finished ninth in the women's marathon uh, from canada and uh, a crazy we had her on the podcast a few weeks back yeah, and so here's here's somebody who has ran. She pretty much ran fifteen hundreds her entire life. Now she turns up to the Olympics and goes, "Hang on a minute! Now I'm in the marathon at the Olympic Games." And it seems to me that she gets better with age, and her capacity is is staggeringly changing over this period of time to go from one distance to the other. And it's back to that. That, I, that question that we kind of danced around a little bit earlier, right? Is it nature or is it, is it nurture? Or is it the combination thereof? Somebody like Melindy, um, is it her environment that enables her, is she de-risking capacity changes in her environment? Or is it is it biological aging and the slowness of it for her genetically that is potentially enabling 
outputs like this. I mean, to your point, we don't know, yeah, yeah. right? But if you had to lean on like an area, I, I kind of think that it's, you know, these, these work hand in hand. You know, that genetic imprint is fueled by our environmental choices. Yeah, and I, for sure, I, I, I agree. And I would say with Melindy, there's a couple of things that that you have to be, that are, that, that are like, there are two miracles, at least, that are going on at the same time. One is that someone who is yeah. an Olympic 1500 wiener runner turns out to be a top 10 Olympic marathoner. Now, that that's unexpected and unusual, even if you're like 28 years old. I mean, it's not unprecedented. Right. Like, like Elliot Kipchoge was a world champion at five thousand meters, and became, but and and you know, everyone who's a world class marathoner was pretty good uh, at the shorter distances. But Mulindi was an Olympic fifteen hundred meter runner. Should have been a two time Olympic fifteen hundred meter runner, but Canada had some uh, bogus selection policies and, and left her off the team. Um, so she she was an, a, an elite fifteen hundred meter runner for you know a decade at the highest level. Right. So. Normally, someone who has who's, who has the potential to be a great marathoner, they're going to get a bunch of signs that it's like, hey, when I ran cross country at Stanford, I I was you know I was really better at six k than I was at fifteen hundred. Or when I do tempo runs with wow. with other fifteen hundred meter runners, I smoke them. Um, so it's like either she was ignoring the signs that she was born for the marathon, or she's yeah. unusually versatile. And then you throw in what you mentioned, which is the mm-hmm. aging, which is like. She didn't, you know, she had a couple kids, didn't compete, you know, ran some Ironmans for fun. Uh, you know, I'm putting air quotes there and, uh, and, and ran remarkably fast and then decided, oh, maybe I should take it yeah. seriously and runs Olympic standard. And in fact, runs a Canadian record. And so there, and, and then she qualifies for the Tokyo Olympics and then Tokyo gets delayed by a year. And you're like, well, that's too yeah. bad because we had this yeah. remarkable comeback story. And now she's going to be, I think she was 41 like it's like well it's you know she's obviously you know at that age the 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 slope is so steep that she's losing like two minutes every year then she comes ninth Hmm. so yeah there's a bunch of mysteries i think yeah exactly yeah it's got to be everything like you you you, because she she clearly had more potential as a long distance runner than she realized as a when she was hammering out 1500s and i guess the problem was she was so good at 1500 that it's like why move up when you're going to the olympics but to add one last point maybe thinking about like how we set limits for ourselves let me just spitball this that melindy dreamed of going and i you know i know melindy but i don't know her well enough to know what was going on in her head but let me just suggest this hypothetical which is that she dreamed of going to the olympics yeah she was running 1500 because that's where kids start, at least in Canada. Um, she was good. And so she realized she could make the Olympics. So she, she followed that path and, and made the Olympics. And I'm sure she won. I think she ran 402. And, and I'm, sure she, I'm sure she dreamed of breaking four and stuff. But maybe making the Olympics was enough that it was, it was uh, read for her as a success. She was so good she was going to make the Olympics. Mm. And maybe in another context, maybe if she was born in Kenya, where 402 gets yeah. you, a, you know, a handshake and a, and a ham sandwich, maybe she would have said, I need to yeah. move up to another uh, distance. Maybe I need to keep exploring. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, D- David mm-hmm. Epstein, whose books I really, really respect, yeah. his most recent book was yeah. called Range. And one of the things, it's all about being generalist, yeah. but one of the things he talks about is a sampling period in sports long-term development, that 
people who make it to the top, often they didn't choose choose their sport when they were six. They were playing every sport. They were the Roger Federer. They were playing all sorts of sports. And so they found the one that they were best suited for. And so when they decided to then apply their grit and go all in, they found the sport Mm -hmm. that they were perfectly suited Mm -hmm. for. So you could argue, and I definitely don't mean mean this to read as a criticism of Melendi, but you could argue that she didn't find her right fit because she was good enough at the 1500. And if she'd been forced to have a different, a higher aspiration, she would have said, well, 4-2 is pretty good, but if I really want to make it, if I want to be able to feed my family, I need to find a different, I need to see if there's something I'm better at. And she might have discovered that she was better at the marathon. I I, I don't know. Look, look, I, I really want to be sensitive to not <clears throat> suggesting that, that, yeah, that making no, the Olympics no, no, in two different no. events is somehow a failure or something. But but just in terms of the how you perceive your ceiling and whether you've succeeded by making the Olympics mm-hmm. or, or, or being competitive at that level maybe affects what you try. Yeah, it's a... Yeah, exactly. And it certainly feeds into that um, result or outcome-based rebuild, rewriting the code for somebody, right? I mean, it it certainly feeds into that discussion, but it's incredible because one of the things I've always noticed that as we age, we tend to, the movement is less, and I don't know whether that's societally induced, whether it is just technologically induced, Right, the fact that I can shoot you an email uh, means I don't have to handwrite you a letter, mate, and go and stick the stamp on and walk down to the mailbox. I mean, everything we do that appears to be an advancement is actually detrimental to human movement and the human body. I mean, for me, biologically, we are designed to buy a locomote within a gravitational field. We are built to move, and everything we do as we age is to deconstruct that movement and, and kind of shut it down. So I think it's that, again, that wonderful question of nature and nurture, but it brings into mind something you spoke about in the book. And I don't want to put you on the spot here, but I will, because <laughs> it's the Australian coming out in me. Um, the Nike Breaking 2 Project. <clears throat> Having bent and done a little bit of early stage work many, many years ago with Alberto Salazar, who was leading that um, project or one of the leads in that project um, was was interesting for me to watch it from afar. I think you unpacked that program a lot. Um, let's step back. Let's go back maybe five, ten years. If you were in charge of the Nike Breaking 2 or anybody's Breaking 2 project, how would you set that up? I wouldn't, because I would say it's stupid. There's no one. No one's going to break two, right? Like that. This. This was the. And there's there's a lot to say about the breaking two project, both positive and negative. Yeah. Um, yeah. But on the positive side, like. It, it it was audacious. Now I think it's important to say there there was another sub two project headed by Yanis Pitsilatis in in Britain that was a few years earlier. Uh, announced a few years earlier that mm. was really and it actually had some of the same people who ended up working f- for, for like Andy uh, Jones in particular who who then moved over to the Nike project mm. I, you know I didn't take Yanis Pitsilatis's project seriously and I, I, I say that with you know with regret um, I, it just seemed too ludicrous I, you know you can harness all the mm. you know biomechanics and various other things and is there some low-hanging fruit by getting the course better yeah but the world record at the time was uh, what it must have been two hundred two fifty seven, or maybe it was even slower when Yanis set up the project. So two hundred three. It just didn't seem plausible to me, and that's maybe that's that's my sort of species level central governor speaking. That it just it it, it, it just seemed <laughs> yeah, like yeah. come on, don't you know? Don't insult me by by making outlandish predictions. 
Um, um, right. And then when Nike did it, and 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 you know they announced I I, I be, they invited Runners World to cover it, so I got a sort of sneak preview before it was announced to the world. And there were there was really just two possibilities in my mind. One is that it was a giant publicity stunt, and it was you know um, was silly, and and that I should deconstruct it and 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 make it clear how silly it was. Or two was that they had something that nobody else had. And that turned out to be the shoes, the the, the Vaporfly shoes, which had the, the stiff carbon fiber plate in them. And so in a sense, in that sense, I, I think my instinct was not wrong, that that just shaving around the edges was not going to get them three minutes. They had something which was going right. to give get them partway there. But there's still, even, even if you... If you time machined me back to uh, and made me a Nike employee in 2015 or something like that and said we've got these shoes that are just doing stupid things on you know in the lab, yeah. what should we do? I I don't know that I would have thought of such an audacious goal, and I think that you know of of, of two mm. minutes or two hours rather for the marathon, uh, I I think that took a real imaginative leap, and then to commit a bunch of money to mm. it, and I think when Kipchoge ran in the Nike race two flat. 25 more so than when he actually broke two minutes when he made that that big like two and a half minutes faster than the then world record um that like it 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 turned my head you know 360 degrees Mm. uh and and i think it really Mm. changed how everyone was thinking about the marathon and it was one of those even though we all knew that it was done with the aid of a whole bunch of you know pacing and and drafting and 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 shoes it absolutely changed my conception of the limits of how fast people can run. And I think it changed other people's, I think it changed every, you know, virtually everyone's. And so that, that, um, Mm. that, that takes something that I think great athletes and, you know, the people behind great athletes are willing to, to make those imaginative leaps that I I don't know that I would have even, even given the same set of tools. I don't know that I would have made that leap. You know, the, the interesting part of that, too, is the fact that, you know, if you don't succeed in getting that sub-two time, I mean, therefore, we've got uh, what could be packaged as a negative outcome, right, or a failure point. And what does that do to potentially suppress the long-term central governor ability, right? It's all feeding in to that central central network. Yeah. So You know, like, there were, there were a lot of people leading up to the sub-two, including, like, some of my good friends and colleagues who were predicting, you know, like, they're going to pay if they try and go out at 60 minutes for halfway. They're going to run 204, 205 because the marathon is unforgiving and will crush you if you yeah. have, you know, any hubris will be will be punished tenfold. And that was really the way yeah. people thought about marathons for a long time that you have to treat it with right. respect. And the first crack in that in that facade was Sammy Wanjiru in the at the 2008 Beijing Olympics. It was like a billion degrees out, mm. super hot. He yeah. went out at just yeah. like breakneck pace, and you can hear the sort of bemusement in the commentators saying, "Well, young yeah. Sammy Wanjiru, like he's gonna get, he's gonna learn something today." And and he ran 206. Get the toe tags ready. <laughs> yeah. It's like, and so nobody understood that, that the race is still one. When you when you sort of do the conversions for the heat and the conditions that day that's one of the greatest marathons ever run and so that was like oh right. he didn't get punished even though he he you know he taunted the marathon and it's not that no one has ever done this before back in the 80s steve jones set a world record uh, like 207 off a 61 first mm. half which 
but that people forget about that and it gets to be like man if you don't if you don't respect the marathon it'll punish you and so i think that that breaking down some of that mystique around the marathon and but as you say so as you say had had breaking two had they run 205 um hmm. y- y- that would have reinforced rather than broken down barriers and it would have probably meant that other ma- so sorry to this, give you a long rambling answer but after the 2008 oh, Olympics, right when Sammy Wanjiru ran that stupid, stupid, stupid race to win it, I did an analysis uh, once for, in the context of progress towards a sub-two marathon, like what happened at major marathons after the 2008 Olympics? And and sort of there was a step change where all of a sudden, on average, mar- major marathons were going out a minute faster because this younger generation of athletes was coming mm. in and they just, they weren't scared. So they were going out faster and you right. get... 15 guys going out a minute faster, 13 of them blow up, but a couple of them hang on mm. and you start getting faster times. And so I think sub right. two, the, the breaking two and the subsequent Ineos race has led to a similar thing. There's a lot of races now that go out 61 and there's a lot of suffering in the last 10 K mm. of these, of these marathons, oh, yeah. but the, people are running fast times partially because of the shoes, but partially because they're being aggressive because the mystique has been broken down. And in your alternate history, which was close, you know, there were three guys in the breaking two race and one of them ran like, I can't remember what the times were, 204 and, and, and 212 or something or 206. Like they blew up, they, they paid the price. And and so at halfway, it was only yeah. Kipchoge left on pace. And all of us sitting there were like, man, this is going to be one expensive, embarrassing failure if Kipchoge <laughs> doesn't hang on. And he yeah. did. But if he hadn't, yeah. if he had tripped or if yeah. he, you know, had a shoelace malfunction, oh my gosh. then Maybe we'd be sitting in an era of like two oh six marathons because people would be like, Yeah, man, if you try and run sub two, you're gonna you're gonna pay the price. Yeah, amazing. I wonder if anyone's gonna take future risks in this category, right? If there's going to be other programs or other perceptions of rate limiting systems or even technology that uh, we could adapt and bring into the into the sport uh, so that we can get get through that barrier. Because at the end of the day it's like in my sport of baseball, uh, which I, by the way, I did run one marathon. I said, when I forget the pain of that marathon, I'll run another. I did the marathon in 2000, 21 years later. I still remember that pain, so I'm still not running another one. I hear um, but uh, at, at, at any point, it's, it's such a, a, a race that requires respect is, is what that requires. And it's, it's at a level, I think, um, you know, that you just can't start out um, running a marathon, right? You just can't, there's so much that has to be even emotionally founded to understand your own feedback points, not failure points, but feedback points. So you can continue that journey. It's, it's, it just absolutely fascinates me because I think to your point earlier, I think it comes down to the mental side of the equation. You know, who's, who's got it, who's got it mentally, who's, who's, you know, if all these physical systems measure out with some sense of similarity, who's who's going to do it? It is, it is interesting. And I'll say a couple of things on that. One is that I agree that if you just start out, and a lot of people do, like recreational runners, they'll be like, I want to run a marathon. So they'll start running and they'll run a marathon. I don't think you're going to be able to push yourself for the most part if you haven't. That's, that's too big a bite to, to start with. If you haven't started with like 5Ks and 10Ks and learned, if you've, you have to learn to find where your edge is in in manageable bites before you can really hope to be sitting on the edge for a whole marathon but conversely there's a there's a phenomenon which is i don't know if it's imaginary tim noakes wrote about it in his 1990 version of lore of running 
and and there's been speculation about it ever since. But the idea is that for many people, their first marathon is their fastest. And we're talking about people not who mm. get up off the couch and, and decide to run a marathon, but elite runners who, have, like Melindy, have, have excelled at shorter distances and then move up. It's not always the case, and, and Elliot Kipchoge has been an exception to that. But in a lot of cases, mm. they don't get a lot faster after their first. And one explanation for that in the sort of central governor context is that um, the marathon is is different from every event below it. Like between a 1500 and a half marathon are far more similar than a half marathon and a marathon. You, you, you get into a different mm. regime in the, in those last like mm. 10 K. And so it's a surprise for many people just how bad it is. And so the central governor is not correctly tuned for the marathon. If, if you're a very experienced runner and accustomed to what pain is supposed to feel like for events up to the half yeah. marathon, you're like, I can handle this. I can handle this. And then it turns, then you go into the marathon. You're like, I can handle this. Uh, you know, I'm just adjusting for it's twice as long. And then you discover this world of hurt in the last 10 miles <laughs> or whatever, you know, five miles. Yeah. And your central governor adjusts and it says, okay, next time we're running that far, we're going to keep it a little easier because otherwise we're going to go through that horrible thing. And, and you know, obviously not everyone's like that. Yeah. Some people get faster and faster. But I think there is some truth to the fact that, like you said, you, you, you'll go back when you've forgotten the pain of the marathon. And if you're an elite runner running two, marath yeah. two marathons a year, you don't have time to forget how bad the last one was. No, no, 100%. Alex, wearable technology. Do you use anything yourself personally? Is there anything that um, kind of is a must-have? So I have a complicated relationship with, with wearable technology, and it's it's not because I don't appreciate it. It's because I'm too much of a data hound. Like, to, to give you context, I in the 90s, back in the yeah. day, I used to you know wake up in the morning, take my heart rate, stand up, wait 10 seconds, take my heart rate, take that data, plot it on Lotus 1, 2, 3, plot the, the running averages <laughs> and the yeah. gap because that was supposed to be some indicator of you know, whatever. Um, of, uh, right. And so, and, and I did that with my mileage and my shoe use and every 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 piece of data I could get, I, I analyzed and probably overanalyzed. And so I'm very conscious right now, especially since I'm sort of post super competitive, that I love data too much. So I experiment with wearables, uh, with, you know, uh, gait analysis and things like that. I like mm -hmm. it, but I, I when I run on a day-to-day -day basis, uh, I have uh, a Timex Iron Man watch that tells me how many seconds I've been running oh, for. Um, so, and I and I do think there's there's a role for cycling in and out of of of, of various streams of data, so that mm. you're never fully dependent on one stream of data to be able to run. Phenomenal answer, and too many I think people grab onto a technology and just try to run with it, and just say, hey, you know, this is going to provide some answers before they've even tried to figure out what questions they're trying to answer, right? They get the kind of horse and cart relationship there askew very often. Mate, um, in our homework on you, and we'll just close out on this. Firstly, I want to hear about the Alto Sax. <laughs> I hear this is, I, 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 we, we want to unpack this. We want to dive into this a little bit. Um, part of the balance of being an athlete, music, how did that come about? And how does it, uh, is it balance? The reason that you are, are involved there. Tell us a little bit about that, because I'm well, with your success as an author. I'm just waiting for the first, um, you know, getting on iTunes and here's Alex, you know, on the Alto. So I, I think you've probably found a, a somewhat uh, older uh, bio. I finally took that out recently because the truth is, since my kids have, uh, have, have uh, since I've been a father, uh, I've had less time to yeah. play. And and so what I like, I play 
yeah. uh, jazz. And so for me, it's oh, it's it. there is v- solo like for me to go in my room and play my sax is is okay, but it's not the same as playing with a quintet or you know a group of other people because with jazz the interactions are what's crucial with improvisational music you're responding yeah, to what's yeah. around you and the people yeah. around you so i can put on a recorded piece of music and, and jam with that but it's it's it's, it's not the it, same yeah. as as with other people and so i haven't found a context here uh in toronto since i moved back uh, seven or eight years ago but ultimately it's a you know it's a form of expression and and i will say I had a yeah. two-year knee injury at one point in my 20s, and I was so grateful mm. to have something else to be able to, uh, yeah. you know, pour that uh, uh, passion that I had that was not able to go into running into into that. Alex, it appears you have limitless kind of capacity yourself. I mean, you're involved in so many things, you know, from from the research that you read to the to the journal journalistic, you know, stuff that you produce uh, as an author um, and as a parent. How do you manage all that time? Do you have a secret to that? Or is it just, you know what, I've just got to chip these things off one at a time? Do you maintain a really rigorous schedule? I, I manage it very inefficiently and poorly and with great with great stress. Um, <laughs> I would say my, the, the biggest challenge in my life is email. I, I keep struggling to figure out an algorithm yeah. to not take like a month to reply to emails. Um, and I haven't, I haven't managed it. So, so the, the answer is honestly, it's like the duck, you know, wh- who's trying to appear smooth on the surface of the water, but is paddling like hell underneath <laughs> yeah. the water. So, yeah. um, you know, I, I try to focus on the things that, that bring me happiness, but it, we yeah. all struggle with the logistical side and, and anyone who's got it, who anyone, well, I was going to say anyone who's got it figured out is probably lying, but then I was going to, well, if they've got it figured out, then I want to hear <laughs> what the, what, what the, yeah. the solution is. Yeah. It's like if you remember being at Woodstock, you probably weren't there, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know, it's exactly. the same analogy, right? Yeah. Happiness is a phenomenal currency. And I think, you know, that's the one thing, you know, I, I try to teach my kids the whole time is, you know, that's the currency you want to work towards is happiness. Alex, where can people find you? What's the best uh, place to uh, learn more about you? Where can where can we buy the book Endure? Um, where's the best place to get a hold of you? Probably the easiest place to find me is on Twitter. My handle is Sweat Science, and I write for a variety of publications, mainly for Outside Magazine. But uh, I will always post art- any article I write on on Twitter, so that's the the good good place to to start. Um, I do have a website, alexhutchinson.net, but it's pretty static. I update it once every decade or so. And uh, uh, in terms of buying books, you know, it should be Endure should be available at fine bookstores everywhere. I would encourage people to. Uh, you know, check out their local bookstore and any, if they don't have it, they'll be happy to order it. But Amazon is, is certainly fine too. And from my perspective, it makes no difference. But of course, you know, just in terms of supporting local communities, bookstores do play a, a huge role in promoting literacy and things like that. Our time is up, but Alex, I can't thank you enough on behalf of our entire team at Kinetics as we're moving forward in this space of what we call the Human Kinesome Project, trying to unpack you know, what are those limits of human performance? You've certainly given us some guiding light and some thought that we never had prior to uh, to picking up your book. So I would encourage all our listeners to get out and get this book and read it because it's, it's game-changing for so many people. So Alex, thank you so much. Well, thanks for the conversation, Gary. I really enjoyed uh, bouncing all these ideas around and thanks for the kind words. That was awesome. Thanks again, Alex. And thank you for listening to the Human Kinosome Project podcast. If you're new to this show, thanks for stopping by and please consider subscribing, rating and sharing this podcast. The Kinosome is starting to take shape, but team, the game is just beginning.